Welcome to the second of our special three-part series on renal cell carcinoma. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. As discussed in part one of our series, A Clinical Investigator Think Tank, this initiative has a series of very targeted objectives and topics, and on each of these three programs, we utilize a different audio production style with the hope of allowing listeners a choice in learning about one of the most rapidly evolving areas in medical oncology. On this program, we use the classic research-to-practice interview audio program that we developed many years ago. And to begin, I chatted with Dr. Tom Hudson, who's also featured along with Dr. Robert Mozer in a video series posted on researchtopractice.com. Tom's video presentation focuses on management of side effects of the newer biologic agents in RCC, And to begin our conversation, and to make an important teaching point, Dr. Hudson presented a very unusual patient from his practice. I have a patient who's a 66-year-old gentleman. He's a construction worker who has metastatic kidney cancer. He was diagnosed after presenting with abdominal pain and had blood in his urine, and a subsequent CT scan demonstrated a large 13-centimeter mass in his right kidney. Subsequently, a biopsy was performed showing mixed histology. It was a clear cell and papillary histology, renal cell carcinoma. And he was sent to me for consideration of therapy and to discuss potential surgery. Now, he had already had a meeting with his urologist, and it was made quite clear to his urologist that he was not interested in pursuing cytoreductive nephrectomy. CT scans of the chest demonstrated metastatic spread to his lungs. Did the surgeon want to take the kidney out? Absolutely. Okay. His performance status was excellent. He would be a normal candidate that one would consider to do cytoreductive nephrectomy on. So I spoke to him, and it was interesting because he actually almost passed out in my office as I mentioned the word surgery. So he had a fear to having surgery Had he ever had surgery? No, but I think he had relatives that had not done well with surgery in the past, and he was very fearful of anything that would cause him pain or discomfort. Did he grasp the fact that he had a disease that wasn't going to be cured? Not initially. And that's the usual case for a medical oncologist, as you know. We oftentimes are given the glory of having to go through the challenges of one's diagnosis and sometimes the facts that they are not curable. And so we did that, and he just made it very clear to me that he was not interested in anything that would require surgery, despite me, you know, at the time, talking to him very strongly that I thought that that would provide him benefit. So he has this big primary lesion, and where exactly were the mets? Multiple pulmonary metastases. He also, on review of CT scans, did have perinephric lymphadenopathy as well as liver metastases. Was it your impression he was having tumor-related symptoms? I think that the pain that he was having in his flank, and certainly intermittent hematuria, which was generally not gross blood in the urine, it was generally microscopic. So it was mainly pain, and that was well-controlled with just using traditional pain medications like hydrocodone. So what were you thinking about at that point? Well, at that point, when he presented to me, that was in 2005. So we're right at the onset of the new agents for therapy for kidney cancer. In fact, these agents were in clinical trials, and they were clinical trials I had access to. And the trials that we had currently opened that had SUTENT, which at the time we felt was probably the most potent of the new agents, required that he undergo cytoreductive nephrectomy. And so the options at that time was serafinib, which was available through the large expanded access program. So because he was not a candidate for clinical trial enrollment, he went on the expanded access program with serafinib. And he had been on that therapy for many, many years. Really? Doing quite well Did with that Did he have a therapy. response? 
He had a mild tumor regression, probably 20 to 30% level of tumor shrinkage. Did the pain get better? Pain got better. He had the traditional side effects one sees with serafinib therapy, and mainly hand-foot syndrome, fatigue. When did the hand-foot show up? Uh, almost immediately, within the first one to two weeks of therapy, and got to the level of approximately a grade two to grade three in severity. He wanted to tough it out and did not want dose interruption or dose reduction, so we kept him on it. And interestingly, the main side effects, again, the hand-foot syndrome, mucositis, fatigue, diarrhea, for the most part improved after he'd been on therapy for four to five months. Hmm. Then his main long-term chronic toxicity was diarrhea. And so once he roughed through the first several months of therapy, his quality of life was not too negatively impacted. He was still able to do construction work, was still working full-time and very active, and his cancer was essentially stable. And he remained that way for well over three years. Wow. And he's one of my longest patients I ever treated with seraphinib. He's still on it? He is still on it. Wow. And then he actually, about three years into treatment, wanted to go on a vacation to celebrate his wedding anniversary. And he asked me, because diarrhea was his main side effect, he said, please, can I take a one to two week break from therapy so that I can enjoy my cruise that I'm going on? And I said, yes. And when he returned from his cruise and went back on full dose serafinib, 800 milligrams per day, he almost went through the exact course of side effects he had when he initially started serafinib. And I think that brings up a point that we've now understood with serafinib. I was one of the investigators that reported an update on the targets data, looking particularly at this concept of tachyphylaxis, or looking specifically at side effects over time in patients that were on serafinib. And it is clear when we look at the phase three targets data set, that if patients were able to be on therapy for greater than, say, three, four months, that the severity of toxicities that they experienced initially was much less. And we saw that across the board with serafinib. So how we translate that now into practice is that I often will tell my patients that if they can rough it through some of the side effects for the first couple months, they do seem to get better. What are your thoughts about whether there's a relationship between the side effects? This has kind of become a theme throughout oncology. What do you think about this idea of renal cancer specifically? Is there a correlation between any of the symptoms that you see with any of these agents and efficacy, you know, like the rash and EGFR, for example? Yeah, and Neil, we have been aggressively looking into possible associations with all of the agents being evaluated for kidney cancer, and we have not yet found one that's lived up to the scrutiny. The only one right now that is an area of ongoing interest is the development of hypertension as a potential side effect of therapy. If you could predict, what do you think it is that would separate a case like this from the more usual case where they may or may not get any benefit? And, you know, obviously this is a very unusual situation. What do you think biologically might explain it or pharmacologically? Yeah, I mean, I think we're just in the infancy stages with these new drugs, and we're just learning how to utilize them optimally, how to select the right therapy for an individual patient. And certainly, you are right in pointing out that it's unusual for a patient to be on a new targeted therapy for kidney cancer for years on end. But we do recognize that 70 to 80% of patients in the clinical trials of all of the agents have what we would define as clinical benefit, that being, for most patients, stable disease, but in some patients, a tumor regression that meets the criteria of partial response. And on average, you know, these agents tend to work for many months. In the initial clinical trials with SUTEN as frontline therapy, we know the progression-free survival was approximately 11 months. So it seemed like SUTEN would control the disease for approximately a year. And it is not uncommon, then, if that's the 50% point, to have patients that do much better for much longer. 
So, as you know, we, for this program, actually interviewed quite a few of your colleagues in U.S. oncology to ask what we should ask you and everybody else, what they want to hear. And we just decided to focus on U.S. oncology because, you know, we just think they're a great group and, you know, involved with a lot of exciting things. And, of course, you're very involved with this and you're involved with this project. I was quite surprised by what they said because... The first thing out of almost everybody's mouth was when we said, what would you like us to ask them? The first question, and every single one of them has asked it is, do we need to do a nephrectomy on all these people presenting with metastatic disease? And I was thinking about it, and I was like, when I've been asking investigators that question over the last few years, the answer has been yes. And you said in this patient, for example, you would have sent him for nephrectomy, which would not have been that easy, I think, with a 13-centimeter tumor. I don't think that's coming out laparoscopically, is it? No, that would be an open surgery. So a major procedure. This guy's over three years. He hasn't had the procedure. His worst fear, I mean, maybe he will someday, but he's gone three years. So I was like, why are they asking this when you all have been saying you got to take it out? I mean, is it a legitimate question, or do we know that this is really the way to go? Well, I think that is probably one of the most important questions, and I think it's great that community oncologists are into the science enough to realize that that is probably one of the most important questions for facing kidney cancer right now is the role of cytoreductive nephrectomy. But, I mean, is it? It absolutely is. Do you think it's a research question, or do you think it's reasonable to treat people with systemic therapy at first and maybe try to avoid, you know, basically them having to have that surgery before they die? Well, I think what this points to is that as oncologists, we are used to not doing cytoreductive surgeries sure. in patients with metastatic disease. It's the concept of do no harm first. And the classic patient would be a patient with metastatic breast cancer in which one does not do mastectomies on. In fact, you use that as an index lesion to follow and for response to therapy sometimes. So kidney cancer has been somewhat analogous to ovarian cancer where we have had data in a randomized fashion in support of cytoreduction. And most folks do recognize that that data exists in patients treated with cytokines. So as you know, that there were two randomized trials, small numbers of patients, one done by the Southwest Oncology Group and one done in Europe, and they demonstrated a survival benefit to having nephrectomy followed by interferon therapy versus interferon alone in patients that had metastatic disease. So now that we have more active therapy, it behooves the point to determine whether or not one actually needs to do cytoreductive nephrectomy in the setting of these new therapies. Will that provide a meaningful improvement in survival? I think the general oncologists are in the same seat I'm sitting in, and that's what I'm trying to do is represent them. And I think actually one of the things they're maybe thinking about is colon cancer. As we've seen a complete change in the paradigm and the management there, there was a report just at ASCO Memorial in colon cancer where they avoided doing surgery, and people who presented with colon, they're asymptomatic, they weren't bleeding, they weren't obstructive, they had METs, and they were able to avoid surgery just by, you know, colon cancer is similar, you know, more new agents, et cetera. So I think it's a really interesting question. If we look back as to why did we even begin doing cytoreductive nephrectomy to begin with? And that goes from data sets that were generally single institution, large data sets from the 1990s. When they looked on multivariate analysis, they found that patients who had cytoreductive nephrectomy seemed to do better and live longer than those who did not. That prompted these two randomized trials where we saw that there was a benefit in survival doing it. We also noted that patients treated with cytokine therapy, either interferon or interleukin-2, tended not to have reduction in the size of their primary tumor. And one of the reasons to remove the primary tumor was because of control, pain control, blood in the urine issues, and so it made strong sense. Now with these newer agents, sininib, serafinib, 
the VEGF inhibitors, temsorolimus and everolimus, we actually do see responses at a higher level in the primary tumor. And so that just begs the question, then, if we do see these higher responses, why do we even need to do cytorepinephrectomy? So there are planned ongoing trials. In fact, the one that has launched currently is a European trial led by Alvin Ravad out of France. It's called the Carmina, C-A-R-M-E-N-A trial, the Carmina trial, where patients are randomized, very similar to the SWOG trial, where they go on to receive sinidinib therapy initially, or they get cytoreductive nephrectomy followed by sinidinib therapy with looking at progression-free survival and overall survival as endpoints. And there have been talks in the cooperative groups of doing a possible intergroup trial with a similar trial design. We do recognize that not all patients are candidates for it. And the way I approach this is that when I see a patient that walks in the door, on my checklist of things to think about is cytoreductive nephrectomy. I think we should think about it in all patients, but it should only be done in selected individuals. And the question then is, well, who is the right individual to have it done? And I think it's a common sense. If you can remove the majority of the total body's cancer volume by doing the surgery and the performance status and there's no comorbidities, then you do it. If you cannot, or if there's any risk either from the surgeon that there would be undue complications, or that removing the primary site still leaves 90% of the volume of the cancer in the body, then that's a patient you would not want to do it in. There have been some reports from institutions looking at measures to try to determine who would be an ideal candidate. There have been numbers thrown out. For instance, some institutions have thrown out 80, 85%. If you could remove 80 to 85% of the total volume of cancer, that would be a patient to take for nephrectomy. What about the reverse, where you have a patient who has a tumor that isn't causing any symptoms, maybe not that huge, but you've got all kinds of problems from metastases? Then clearly that would be a patient that would not probably benefit from cytorectinephrectomy and you would start systemic therapy. I mean, does that happen very often or not really? It does. It does. And that would be a classic patient that you saw that, you know, you already mentioned they have a small primary tumor. And so that means that the extent of the disease outside of the kidney is much greater than what's inside the kidney and they shouldn't have it done. And I think also that docs that treat kidney cancer patients have certainly experienced patients in which they went for cytoreductive surgery, a cytoreductive nephrectomy, and did not do well afterwards and never went on to receive systemic therapy. And then you always question the fact whether or not that was the right choice to make. So what's this man's state of mind nowadays? He finally realized, I guess, what he was facing. And does he realize how, I mean, somewhat unusual it is that he's doing as well as he is? He does. And certainly, you know, what tends to happen when you have a patient that is tolerating a therapy well, their quality of life is minimally impacted. They're living their life. They start questioning the diagnosis a lot. And so I had to... Whether he really was renal cancer. Yeah, exactly. Wow. And just questioning, You're taking this you know, pill, you know, how can this be cancer? Huh? And so I'd have to, you know, bring him back to reality once in a while to try to tell him, you know, this is a very unique situation. We need to begin to prepare for what your next therapies are going to be. We did entertain at different times potential to do a nephrectomy, hold the therapy and do that. But we elected not to do that. And so, you know, he's just done fine with Nexavar therapy. And it's still 13 centimeters or it shrunk down? It's really stayed about 13 centimeters. It may have shrank at one point by a centimeter or two. What about the hematuria? Has not been an issue. So it stopped? That's right. And the pain? That's Interesting. Right. So one of the docs we talked to was Dr. Robert Rufo from Sedona, Arizona. And first we said, well, what are your questions? Of course, number one, should an nephrectomy be performed? I mean, to everybody was that. But then we also asked them for cases. And here's his case, because I think it's kind of related to your case. So he's got a 75-year-old man who was diagnosed with renal cell with tumor evasion into the inferior vena cava nodal involvement two years ago. He gets a radical nephrectomy, residual disease in the inferior vena cava, and possibly outside the kidney in the renal bed. So he gets started on sunitinib, 
37.5 milligrams, four weeks on, two weeks off. Develops intermittent diarrhea, grade 1 to 2 fatigue. After three cycles, a CAT scan reveals complete disappearance of disease. Over the past two years, his sunitinib has been tapered to 25 milligrams, four weeks on, four weeks off now, due to complaints of fatigue, leukopenia, mild thrombocytopenia, platelet counts in the 90s. He's in a clinical complete remission. He is having some toxicity, which I just described. And the question is, does he need to continue on therapy? Is this some kind of cytostatic effect? Could he maybe cut the dose or interval down a little bit? Also, this patient had an MI five years ago being followed by a cardiologist, mug is normal. What about that issue? So actually, it's a little bit similar to your case, and I think these questions that he poses are pretty interesting. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, one of the other areas that we don't have a good guidance with that we'll need to study further is going to be on length of therapy and should we ever stop therapy in patients. Now, clearly, this patient that he's describing is unique in the fact that they've had a complete response, but oftentimes, you know, I've had a patient like this myself, and the question comes, what do you do? And I think just like he did, and if I have a patient that is experiencing some toxicity, they have minimal to no disease, then we certainly try to lower the dose to the lowest dose possible that will control the cancer. He's done that, it appears, down to the lowest recommended dose of Sutent, which is 25 milligrams. That's the lowest dose that we know will, in most patients, achieve a certain level of exposure of the but drug. But now he's four weeks on, four weeks off. Is that sort of now dropping now, down? That's even dropping down below that. And so I think as a party line, we would recommend patients not discontinue therapy and continue it because we don't really know what the outcome would be. There's certainly concern that there could be rapid regrowth of tumor to the point that you may never regain control of it. Now, I do have my own anecdotal experience. I've had a patient that was like this that had a resolution of what we thought was a renal fossa recurrence versus scar tissue. It had shrunk down and was less than a centimeter in size. And the radiologist told me, you know what, this could just be scar tissue patient had been on Sutent for several years. And so I had a frank discussion with him along the lines that I don't know what would happen if you stopped it. You could have a 50% chance it could rapidly regrow, 50% chance it may not. And so he elected to attempt it. And so we withheld therapy for two months, repeated scans, and it rapidly had regrown and spread. And so we threw him back on the Sutent and we were able to regain control of his cancer again. So I think there is clear concern that what's going on is a cytostatic type of an effect, that there's probably viable cancer, whether or not it's radiographically apparent or not. Now, another sort of practical question he asked that I thought was interesting is the issue of post-nephrectomy radiotherapy in this situation where you know you got residual disease. Now, he didn't get it, but what about that? I think many leading renal cell aficionados would recommend strongly against that, and that's based on a series of clinical trials using adjunctive radiotherapy to the renal fossa done in the 70s and 80s. Now, my radiation oncologist colleagues quickly point out that they have much greater and more technologically savvy machines, and they are able to deliver more focused therapy. There is no trials that I'm aware of ongoing to evaluate the role of radiotherapy. And I think right now we generally avoid radiation therapy because we recognize renal cell carcinoma to be radioresistant. I guess there's always been that sort of general perception that it's not radiosensitive. What about the issue of heart disease and these agents, particularly sunitinib, and its use in people as this man with a prior, for example, myocardial infarction? So one of the concerns brought up is about pre-existing heart disease or the development of heart failure and cardiovascular toxicities with VEGF-directed therapies. I think that clearly is a concern. We've recognized 
that targeting VEGF can have cardiovascular effects back in the days when bevacizumab was in clinical trials. Generally, it's a low incidence of venous thromboembolism, bleeding risks, heart attacks, and strokes. There has been recent reports looking at SUTENT, and most of these have been one or two institution reports suggesting that that incidence may actually be higher than what we initially thought, particularly in its ability to decrease left ventricular ejection fraction. Now, in the phase three trials of SUTENT, we did MUGA scans. We did them quite frequently on study, and were able to show that that phenomenon was reversible. But, but it, it exists. because it, it definitely exists. In, now, is this separate from the hypertension? This is separate from hypertension. The mechanism of this injury is unclear. There, and I've never heard about that with BEV. Has that been reported with BEV? Um, is causing, it just the TKIs? I think it's the TKIs, and it's in regards to causing heart failure. So it's actually like a cardiomyopathy? It's something like that. And there's ongoing research. Cardiologists are doing you know, muscle biopsies right now to try to figure that out. But it's clearly a concern when one uses these agents. And interestingly... Again, the clinical trial of SUTENT versus interferon, we showed that this was a reversible phenomenon. The label of SUTENT does not require baseline echocardiograms or assessments of left ventricular ejection function. It only recommends it at the opinion of the investigator. Now, what I've done, practically speaking, is if I have a patient that I think is borderline, has subclinical heart failure, then we clearly will get an EKG and do a baseline echocardiogram. And if they develop shortness of breath or symptoms concerning for heart failure, we'll repeat it. So what about serafinib? Same thing or not really? Well, I think with serafinib, we have looked at the data with serafinib. We have not been able to find that level of cardiovascular toxicity that we saw with SUTEN. I think many of us think it exists, but right now it has not been panned out yet in the clinical trials. Now, he also had the question about the issue of cytopenias and the TKIs. And again, in this case, the patient had mild thrombocytopenia, some leukopenia. What do we know about that? Well, it seems to be a direct marotoxic effect, and not all drugs are the same. And so SUTEN is somewhat known for causing cytopenias. We saw that in the clinical trials that were performed with the drug. It appears to be at a higher level than what one sees with serafinib. And certainly the mTOR kinase inhibitors, temsorolimus, everolimus, certainly cause cytopenias, but that's a direct mTOR effect. Let's talk about both of the TKIs. And strategically, how do you think through dealing with side effects in terms of dose and schedule? And do you think that most renal cell investigators would agree? Okay. So clearly there are toxicities with use of the TKI therapies. And I think management of the toxicity starts at day one when you first see the patient. And it's the expectations of therapy and in reviewing the potential toxicities. And I usually focus at that point with my patients talking about the balance between quality of life and what we're actually gaining from the medication. I think it's also equally important to understand that we have a clear recognition that more is better with these agents. We have demonstrated that both with serafinib and with sinidinib and with other agents that are in development, for instance, exidinib and pazopinib, that these VEGF-directed TKIs, when we do pharmacokinetic analysis, we are able to show that more drug exposure as measured by AUC is associated with higher efficacy. And so with that underlying concept, as a doctor, one should always try to maintain dose intensity 
as long as possible. And I usually discuss that with my patients. You know, we talk about the side effect they're experiencing and the data that exists that lowering the dose of the therapy may produce less good results. You have to make a judgment call. If the quality of life of the patient is really suffering because of the toxicity, then clearly one needs to intervene. And before lowering the dose, we will try a variety of usually supportive measures. That could be topical emollients, for instance, for hand-foot syndrome, doing pedicures, changing the shoes that they're wearing. It may be using pharmaceutical agents for management of heartburn, trying to help with mucositis with topical agents. But if it gets to the point that despite those maneuvers, we're still left with toxicities that are really adversely affecting the patient's quality of life, then we need to do a dose reduction. And usually what precedes the dose reduction is dose interruption. We usually will hold the therapy for two, three days. The toxicity usually resolves or improves significantly, and then they'll resume at a lower dose. And what would be the common symptom that would cause you real problems with sunitinib? Is it fatigue or cytopenias? If you had to guess, what's the one It's prob- fatigue. Fatigue. Uh, fatigue would be heard. the most common. That's what I've heard. Um, is that more specific to sunitinib than other agents? It is. It's so a higher amount of fatigue, yes. In fact, in the pivotal clinical trial of sutent versus interferon, the degree of fatigue was similar between interferon and sutent, occurring greater than 50% of patients. So it was a very significant side effect. What kind of clinical state would typically get you to say, okay, we got to do something here for sunitinib and fatigue? Yeah, so I think, you know, we use the common toxicity criteria grading system, which generally for someone that has grade three toxicity with fatigue, which is the level that would require dose interruption or dose reduction, would be fatigue that impacted the patient's activities of daily living, such to the point that they are bed bound for a significant portion of the day. So it's a measure of both activities of daily living and how much bed bound they are and effects on performance status. What do you think the mechanism is of the fatigue? I don't know that we have a clear understanding of that. Certainly it's been recognized that sutent can induce hypothyroidism. Hmm. So one needs to always be on guard for that and check for that routinely. And if you do see hypothyroidism developing, you need to start a patient on Synthroid. Clearly that may explain some fatigue, but there is fatigue on and above that that exists without the development of hypothyroidism. And there's also been reports of- sleepy? It's just we're tired. It's just tiredness. They and they do give stimulants out stimulants help. I mean, even caffeine or I think know. stimulants do help. I've certainly seen some doctors prescribe stimulants. Um, steroids? As, no stimulants such as Ritalin. One would avoid steroids for these patients because of drug drug interactions. The steroids will increase the metabolism of so Ritalin. Yeah, I've heard Ritalin. I mean, you ever do that? I have not. Then what would you do exactly? What dose would you drop down to? So with sunitinib, I would choose the middle dose is 37.5 milligrams, and you would try to keep the schedule at the four-week on, two-week off. And so the dose reductions that we've used in the clinical trials of sunitinib and that are in the package label for it are 50 milligrams as the full dose, 37.5 milligrams as the intermediate dose, and then 25 milligrams as the lowest dose. Now, this patient with a platelet count in the 90s and some leukopenia doesn't sound like it was a major problem. Would that be enough for you to do anything? Or what kind of cytopenia problem would you have? Would you actually need neutropenic fever or bleed, or is there an absolute level where you'd start doing something? There is. And when I manage these patients, I manage them the way I did when they were on clinical trial. So I use the common toxicity criteria grading system that I know a lot of physicians in practice are familiar with. And so usually the platelet count would need to be closer to 50,000. 75,000 for sure or below before one would consider a dose reduction. And then we look at the absolute neutrophil count. If the absolute neutrophil count is less than 1,000, that would be a reason for dose reduction. And so interesting with sunidinib, which again is the schedule of it is different than the other TKIs that don't have a break. So sunidinib is four weeks on, two weeks off. We see fluctuations in the blood counts that are mind-boggling. 
For instance, you would expect when someone's on therapy that towards the end of their four-week treatment course, their blood counts should be at the lowest and that you would have recovery in the two weeks off. That's not always the case. And I've seen disparate fluctuations in blood counts such that, for instance, the platelet count would be the lowest on day 28, recovers in the two weeks off by the time they start. But at the same point, the anemia that the patient had improves with therapy and falls in the two weeks off. So you see, and could that be, you know, reflections in the cancer itself and perineoplastic syndromes that have been described with kidney cancer? Certainly. And so I think, you know, it's not just cytopenias, it's where are they happening in the treatment course. If someone was having a 90,000 platelet count at day 28 of sinidinib, I wouldn't really be too concerned. I would confirm that it did rise to a level that was safe to begin the next cycle. But if it was 90,000 on day one, I'd be a little bit more concerned that it would drop during the treatment course. Now, this 4-2 schedule, is there really a biologic or pharmacologic logic, or was it just sort of arbitrary? I mean, is there any reason to think it wouldn't work at a lower dose or whatever continuously? Well, it is somewhat arbitrary, the schedule. I mean, that panned out in phase one trials of the drug where patients needed to have a two-week break from therapy to recover from toxicities. And you know what the main toxicity was? Fatigue yeah, was yeah, an issue. Definitely. And so that's how the four-week on, two-week off scheduled. Have we thought about alternative dosing strategies? Certainly. And as you know, there is a phase two trial called the renal effect trial, which has finished enrollment, which was comparing the traditional 50 milligram four-week on, two-week off to a continuous dosing 37.5 milligrams. And the U.S. oncology physicians were an active participant in this clinical trial. Now, another question that Dr. Rufo has, and again, very common question, what's the role of temsorolimus? We don't see these people haven't used it a whole lot. You know, they've heard about its use in, quote, high-risk disease, which to me always seemed kind of weird in a way. And so his question is, what's the role? Is it just for high risk? Can you use it in people who fail TKIs? You know, how do you use the drug? Yeah, very important and practical and question. And also, I guess, Everolimus is now out there now. Certainly. So very practical questions. And, you know, if we're going to approach this with an evidence-based manner, which is generally how most of us treat our patients, then the evidence certainly would support the use of Temsorolimus in a poor-risk patient population. Well, why could that possibly be? Well, I'll tell you that basic science research and research we've done to date would suggest that there are different biologies of cancers. And one can use clinical features of a patient and group them into risk categories. And these risk categories may predict the underlying biology of the cancer, such that it appears that poor risk patients are uniquely sensitive to mTOR inhibition. So describe clinically to me a patient where you'd go, "Mm, I'm going to be using Temsorolinus and not Sunitinib. So it would be a poor-risk patient that would come in the door. You can look at a patient and really gather based on performance status that someone's really symptomatic from their cancer. And the clinical features we use, if you use the Memorial Sloan-Kettering criteria, there's several. There's the Cleveland Clinic, UCLA. There's the European criteria. They generally focus on the same type of features. They focus on calcium levels. So corrected calciums that are high, they focus on degree of anemia, they focus on time from diagnosis to treatment as a reflection of how rapid one's tumor is progressing. They look at LDH, and these measures generally are going to be abnormal in patients that when they walk in the door look very symptomatic to you. And also performance status in some of these models is also one of the features. And so do so you follow that model? I mean, you see a patient like that who's going downhill rapidly, they're symptomatic, et cetera. You're going to use Temsorolimus and not Absolutely. Really? In fact, and that is the patient population that we found that Temsorolimus works profoundly in. 
we see significant improvements. First of all, temsorolimus is a relatively easy drug to administer with not a lot of side effects. One is certainly concerned about sinidinib-type side effects in someone that is already overtly symptomatic from their cancer. And when I've used temsorolimus in that patient population, I've seen it work well, where there's been an improvement in the quality of life, control of the cancer for several months. So do you see responses in these types of patients to temsorolinus after sunitinib, and do you see responses to sunitinib after temsorolinus? You know, the goal at the end of the day is to be able to provide your patients with all of the known active drugs for their cancer at some point in the treatment course. We really don't have a good idea yet on an appropriate sequence of these agents. It is clear based on, again, evidence-based medicine that sunitinib is the most potent commercially available drug, and most patients the good and intermediate for sure should receive that agent, and temsorolimus should be for the poor-risk patients. After that, on progression, it becomes less clear. There is an ongoing clinical trial that is going to answer the question that you posed to me. What is the level of temsorolimus as second-line therapy versus Nexavar serafinib as second-line therapy? And so to answer your question again a different way, my patients will all receive temsorolimus at some point in the treatment course. Do I know which is best to give second or which is best to give third, I do not. So I guess, though, that we do have data in terms of treatment of patients who've had sunitinib with everolimus. I'm not sure if that's better data than you have or, you know, it seems like it is. I mean, right now, how do you approach that question? A patient has sunitinib, maybe they responded, stable, whatever, now they're progressing. What's your next drug? Well, you know, outside of a clinical trial setting, I will generally discuss with the patient their options, and I'll try to lean them towards an mTOR inhibitor, whether that be temsorolimus or everolimus. Most patients are electing everolimus because it's an oral drug, and it doesn't require them to come weekly to clinic for the IV. Do I know that there's any difference between temsorolimus or everolimus in that setting? No. But the data, the evidence-based data, would support the role of everolimus. We have to remind ourselves, though, that the phase three everolimus trial was a refractory second line and beyond patient population. It wasn't just second line. It was second, third, fourth. It was any other prior therapy except temsorolimus, and there was a benefit with a PFS, updated PFS of approximately five months. So other than oral versus IV, what about other side effects, toxicity issues, everolimus versus tem? I have not been able to discern any appreciable differences in toxicity. We know there are going to be on-target toxicities such as hyperglycemia, such as elevations in cholesterol that need to be monitored for, but the cytopenias, degree of cytopenias, the ability in very rare cases to cause a pneumonitis, a non-infectious pneumonitis appears to be similar between the drugs. You mentioned those interesting metabolic abnormalities. What do we know about the mechanisms and what do you do to monitor and intervene? Yeah, so mTOR is intimately involved in normal cell homeostasis glucose metabolism. And so thereby, if you inhibit mTOR, it's expected that you will develop hyperglycemia. We've seen that when we use mTOR inhibitors in organ transplant patients. For instance, rapamune or serolimus has been used for years in the setting of organ transplant as immune modulator. And hyperglycemia is a known expected side effect of that use. And so what do I do to monitor my patients? We will check blood sugars periodically. And if someone's on everolimus, which is an oral drug, and they're not coming to see me in clinic, but every three or four weeks, I make sure I check a blood sugar then. If I start seeing that their random blood sugar is starting to elevate, then we're more aggressive in our monitoring. I'll have patients do AccuChecks. We'll sometimes have to start patients on oral hypoglycemics. And I think everyone at some point on one of these mTOR inhibitors will develop 
hyperglycemia. It's just a matter of when it's going to happen. As far as cholesterol goes, I usually check fasting lipid profiles at the time they're getting their CT scans for restaging. And we're doing CT scans for restaging about every two months. So I usually will check the lipid profile at that point. And if need be, start them on lipid-lowering medication. We clearly have reached a point now in kidney cancer where we have multiple new agents, and we've recognized that we are providing benefit to our patients, but with toxicity. And so as their new agents are being developed, one of our goals is to try to find agents that are either more potent than what we have currently available or agents that have improved side effect profiles that will make them more tolerable to our patients for long-term administration. And I think with exidinib and pazopinib, these are two new drugs, second-generation TKIs, if you will, that hope to hold that promise of either having greater efficacy or an improved or different side effect profile that will make it more amenable to long-term use. And so right now, exidinib is being studied as a second-line therapy in a phase three trial called the ACCESS trial, and patients are randomized to receive either exidinib or serafinib as therapy. What do we know about the mechanism of action of exitinib compared to the other TKIs? Or it's it's a more potent VEGF1, 2, and 3 receptor inhibitor. And it's less dirty, if you will. Its effects on CKIT, PDGF are significantly less. Same thing with pazopinib. They are more potent inhibitors of VEGF1, 2, and 3. The IC50s of them binding to those receptors are much greater. And we think that's what may explain greater efficacy. What about side effects and tolerability of these two agents? Both of them appear to be more tolerable. And the long-term side effects that many of our patients have with sinidinib and serafinib, diarrhea, fatigue, hand-foot syndrome, mucositis, appear to be significantly less with these two new agents. And how much efficacy data is out there on these two agents? Most of the data exists with pazopinib, and that is currently sitting at the FDA under review for approval for this cancer. And there is data from a phase two trial that I presented at last year's ASCO and at the ESMO meeting where we showed in patients that were either treatment naive or patients that had had prior cytokine therapy, few patients actually had bevacizumab, we showed a objective response rate, resistifying, in the 30% range with a progression-free survival of approximately 11 months, showing, again, efficacy very similar to that of what we see with sinidinib, with a toxicity profile from that phase two trial, again, showing significantly less hand-foot syndrome, significantly less fatigue. We mentioned that in the phase three trial of sinidinib, the fatigue rate was greater than 50%. We saw with pazopinib, the fatigue rate was about 30%. We saw all-grade hand-foot syndrome with pazopinib of 12%. The degree of cytopenias with pazopinib also appear to be less. Now, again, we're comparing a phase two trial with a phase three trial. Cora Sternberg presented a randomized phase three trial at this year's ASCO, and the results were very similar to what we saw in the phase two trial. We saw, again, efficacy as measured by ability to cause tumor regression. This was against placebo? This was against placebo, as well as efficacy results similar to what we saw with sinidinib in a progression-free survival. Again, very similar to sinidinib with a toxicity profile different than what we see with sinidinib. So the hope with that drug is that we'll have an agent that is at least as good as sinidinib, but with a toxicity profile that's different that may make it more amenable to long-term use. So what's the test of that? Well, there's an ongoing phase three trial called the head-to-head trial where sinidinib is being compared directly against pazopinib as frontline therapy. Where is that trial in terms of accrual, and when do you think we'll see some results? Yeah, so the trial is rapidly ongoing. It's over a third accrued. It's a global trial that's opened up at many sites in the United States. Right now, if pazopinib were available, how would you utilize it outside a protocol setting? 
So if it had an approval indication as initial therapy, then I would be using it for most of my patients as initial therapy. Absolutely. What do you think most investigators would say? I think once they get the experience of the differences in toxicity with it, I think they would agree. What about translational work? All of a sudden, there seems like a ton of that, and you've been doing that, and you reported some stuff at last ASCO 2008. Can you talk about that and what we know in general about correlations with these agents, including bisoponib? So I think the future for drug development and therapy for kidney cancer is focusing on molecular profiling, the concept of trying to individualize patient care, and we're actively searching for biomarkers and predictors of response to these therapies. We have clinical predictors of response, and my colleague Bob Mozer and I have published a nomogram from the phase three trial where one could use clinical prognostic features, such as, again, performance status, calcium level, and be able to predict a progression-free probability at one year using sinidinib. We want to take that a step further and actually look at the tumor and do molecular profiling. And so my group, as well as several others, are actively looking at tumor specimens, trying to determine a molecular signature that would suggest that patients would benefit more from a, for instance, a VEGF-directed approach, which would be a sinidinib bevacizumab, exidinib, pazopinib, serafinib approach versus a group of patients that may seem to do better with an mTOR-driven approach, which would be the temsorolimus or everolimus approach. What you're getting to is the phase two trial. We assess biomarkers right. to try to predict activity or efficacy of pazopinib. And what we looked at were biomarkers that we thought would be important to demonstrate activity, those being VEGF levels, soluble VEGF receptor level circulating endothelial cells. And we also looked at mutational status in tumor specimens for the von Hippel-Lindau gene. Now, as many people know, the von Hippel-Lindau gene mutation is what we think drives the pathophysiology of most renal cell cancers, at least the clear cell type. And initial reports for von Hippel-Lindau were that it occurred in 60 to 70% of patients. And in our sample from our phase two trial, we evaluated 78 patients, the largest sample set to date evaluated for mutation hypermethylation and found that we could find an abnormality in VHL functioning in up to 90% of patients. And I think what we see is improvement in the science and ability to detect these mutations, explaining the difference there. Interestingly, we did not correlate a response to therapy with presence of VHL mutation. Although so many people had it, could you really look at it? Exactly. So there's clearly problems in interpreting that, but it was very ubiquitous. We looked for both missense mutations. We looked at different exons that have been described for mutations. We looked at hypermethylation of VHL and found no correlation with activity. As far as the biomarkers, we saw the only biomarker that we found that would predict for both activity of the drug as measured by response rate as well as progression-free survival was soluble VEGFR2. And that was strongly correlated with both response efficacy and progression-free survival. So Brian Schneider of Indiana University is my SNP tutor, and I think I'm starting to begin to understand it and some of the work he's done in breast cancer. What about SNPs and this issue of VEGF and angiogenesis and renal cancer? Well, I think that's an important area. You know, can we take it another step further and start looking at differences among individuals that may explain why they have different outcomes with therapy? And I think that looking at single nucleotide polymorphisms is clearly key, as well as other pharmacogenetic or genomic issues on metabolism of these drugs. And so I don't know that we're there yet in a single SNP that will predict for response for any of these agents, but they're actively being studied. In fact, the Cleveland group was looking particularly at sinidinib and looking at two different SNPs for VEGF, both looking at 
efficacy as well as the ability to cause hypertension in trying to answer the question of whether hypertension is a predictor of efficacy to these agents. And they were not able to find a correlation with the two SNPs that they evaluated. But there have been data suggesting in some situations correlation of hypertension and efficacy. There is, and it's very conflicting. I will tell you, Neil, I'm not absolutely convinced that hypertension is not just an on-target toxicity and that that's a reflection of just drug exposure. As I mentioned earlier, we have clearly shown that drug exposure correlates with efficacy. And there has been data presented two years ago at ASCO showing clearly a relationship of AUC and exposure with activity of sunidinib. In a study that was presented by Oliver Rixey at this year's ASCO, they showed the same thing with exidinib. We have seen similar pharmacokinetic unpublished with pazopinib. So clearly more is better with these drugs. And so you have drugs that are VEGF inhibitors, and we know one of the main issues when you inhibit VEGF is the ability to cause hypertension is not just an effect of having more drug. And if you see improved efficacy, is that not just a reflection of just more drug in the system doing that? And interestingly, Oliver Rixey and his co-authors presented data that would suggest that it's independent of drug exposure. In fact, their abstract at ASCO this year suggested that there was no correlation. They were independent. And that every 10 millimeter or higher increase in diastolic blood pressure greater than 90 correlated with improvement in efficacy. They also showed that based on a population pharmacokinetic analysis, of exidinib, that that was independent of drug exposure. 